So now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told this parable. What woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In the 2004 film, National Treasure, there is a prop referenced to as an ocular device. This device is a pair of antique spectacles crafted with a steampunk aesthetic. The spectacles have multiple lenses with different shades of color that when configured correctly can reveal the secret messages embedded within the Declaration of Independence. The main protagonist of this film, Benjamin Franklin Gates, refers to this device as the vision to see the treasured past. The vision to see the treasured past. The treasured history of our faith is embedded in the pages of God's written word. And when we configure our lenses correctly, we can see the treasured history emerge in the sacred pages of Scripture. So we can configure the lenses to focus on the economics of a passage. Then we can reconfigure the lenses to see the political and social structures. Configure and reconfigure, and hopefully what will happen is we will see a fuller and more fuller uh, picture, accurate picture of the past emerge. Now, before we jump into the parable of the lost coin, uh, let's take a moment to configure our lenses by considering the, the, the social cultural dynamics of this passage. What, what theolo- theologians commonly refer to as the world behind the text. Now, the context of this parable is found in verses 1 through 2, where Luke says this Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him, listening to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, here in Luke, we are introduced to Jesus' audience. And his audience is a socially diverse collection of people representing two distinct social classes. There are the, the tax collectors and the sinners, and there are the Pharisees and the scribes. Of those present in the crowd surrounding Jesus, there were tax collectors. And tax collectors were those who turned their back on their countrymen by conspiring with Rome in their conquest. So if any of you have been watching The Chosen, they've done a great job demonstrating the tension between the the Jewish tax collectors and the Jewish people, right? So with the, um, the Apostle Matthew, There's an incredible amount of tension between Matthew and the rest of the disciples, which would have made sense, culturally speaking, because tax collectors had turned their backs on their countrymen. 
But other than tax collectors, there were also sinners whose behavior and or occupation made them immoral apostates. They were people who were culturally Jewish, but they were not faithfully Jewish. And then finally, there were the Pharisees and the scribes who were the religious elite. They were the religious elite who, in their self-righteous judgment, took objection to Jesus' reception of the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, Jesus conveyed a single message to this surrounding crowd. A single message. Sinners are valuable to God. Sinners are valuable to God. However, the presentation of his message in the form of this simple parable compelled the original audience to consider the message from their own unique cultural perspective. So so the application of this message is unique for and congruent to the social classes present in the larger narrative. In other words, there was something for everyone in Jesus' audience to learn, sinner and Pharisee alike. There was something for everyone. Likewise, knowing how this message would have been understood and received by the original audience allows us as modern readers to better understand it and apply it to our own lives. Now, while the primary focus of this message is going to focus on the parable of the lost coin, it's important for us to note that this parable appears in a trilogy of parables. The the parable of the coin is sandwiched between two very endearing and perhaps more familiar parables. The first is the, the very endearing and familiar parable of the lost sheep. And the second is the even more familiar and perhaps more endearing parable of the prodigal son. Now, with each one of these parables, something of great value is lost, it is found, and it is celebrated. It's lost, it's found, and it's celebrated. And this morning, with our ocular devices correctly configured, we're going to see that Jesus values the lost He searches for the lost, and he rejoices when they are found. So first, Jesus values the lost. The first character here we are introduced to in this parable is a woman. And while as modern readers we might quickly gloss over the gender of the protagonist, Jesus was in fact very intentionally painting a potent cultural picture with his characterization. Now, this picture is two-dimensional. First, Jesus invites the Pharisees and the scribes to identify with a woman, something that Michael Card points out would not have come naturally to them at all. It was completely countercultural. Remember the controversy of Jesus talking to the woman at the well. Remember how the Jesus, uh, Jesus' disciples went into town for food, and when they came back and they found him talking to a woman, they were shocked. They were amazed. This was completely countercultural. And if the disciples struggled with how much with this, how much more would the Pharisees have struggled with this? A lot. So Jesus invites the Pharisees and the scribes to identify with a woman. Second, and more radically, Jesus invites the Pharisees and the scribes to identify this woman with God. He invites them to identify her with God. Referencing all three of the parables that make up this section, biblical scholar Greg Bloomberg concludes this. 
The father is a symbol for God. This means the shepherd and the woman in the preceding two parables are also, in some sense, images for God. Striking metaphors in a culture that often despised shepherds and considered women second-class citizens. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes would have been appalled by this comparison. On the other hand, we, we can implicitly imagine that a woman listening to the same story would have been amazed by what she heard, but for an entirely different set of reasons, right? Her sex was being elevated. For, for both the religious elite and any present women, Jesus painted a, a vivid picture that drew a stark contrast between God's perspective and the social constructs of the day. Jesus was turning the world on end. Now, I, I want you to listen to what I am saying and not what I'm not saying. Okay, listen to what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. I am not saying that, that God is a woman, okay? You, you cannot argue that from this text. That's not the point of the text. What I am saying is that Jesus knew that in the existing social constructs of the day that women were devalued and they were oppressed. And he was committed to identifying with them and revealing their true value. In fact, Michael Card in his commentary on Luke argues that Luke, of all of the gospel authors, is most committed to demonstrating Jesus' effort to, to elevate slaves and women, to, to restore the dignity of the downtrodden and devalued of society. Now, this parable takes this a step further by presenting us with, with a curious object, a lost coin, a lost coin. Now, the value of this coin was both limited and relative. It was limited and relative. The coin was a Greek coin and it would have been worth about a day's wages in the ancient world. So, in this regard, the coin was of limited value, particularly to those of higher wealth in society. However, to the woman, the coin would have been of great relative value to her social standing. In fact, the mention of ten coins implies that they were all she had. So this single coin represents a tenth of this poor woman's wealth. Moreover, this coin could have very well been part of her dowry. If this was indeed the case, then the coin represented her value as an eligible bride. In fact, as part of her dowry, the coin may have been woven into her garments, woven into the very thing she wore, tying it even more into her identity. Now, Jesus used this stark contrast of limited and relative value of this coin to reveal just how much he loves the lost. You see, the sinners and the tax collectors might not have been uh, they, they, the sinners and tax collectors might not have been precious to the Pharisees, but they were precious to Jesus. What, what, what Jewish society woefully underestimated is of great value to the God of creation. 
And there's a very important lesson for us in this. As a Christian, as a Christian person, Jesus values you. He values you. As a sheep, you are of infinite value to the great shepherd. As a child, you are of infinite value to your heavenly father. And as the simple coin is of great value to this woman, so you are a treasure to Jesus. Jesus values you. But but here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just value you. Jesus also values the still lost people who surround you. He values the still lost people who surround you. Now, it's easy for us to lose sight of what Jesus really values. It really is, especially in the kind of the social cultural environment that we currently find ourselves in, right? We're, we're in the midst of a culture war. There is no denying it, right? And let's be honest, as Christians who are trying to live by the truth of God's word, it can be challenging to love the lost around us today. It can be. But on this point, I I want to warn you that there is an inherent danger to being a knowledgeable Christian. There is an inherent danger to being a knowledgeable Christian. You see, as we grow in knowledge, it is very easy for us to become self-righteous prats. I mean, just consider the disciples. Just consider the disciples, right? They spent three years in the presence of Jesus. They ate with him, they talked with him, and they traveled with him. Over the course of those three years, they were completely immersed in the teachings of Jesus. Completely and utterly immersed in the teachings of Jesus. However, in the culminating moment of Jesus' life and ministry, as he is about to go to the cross in the ultimate expression of selfless love, what are the disciples getting on about? What are they getting on about? They're arguing, right? What are they arguing about? Yeah, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're arguing about who's better. They're arguing about Jesus likes me more than he likes you. For real? Now, here's the thing. It's very easy for us, 2,000 years of 2020, 2,000 years of of hindsight, for, for us to sit in a place of judgment over them. Now listen, if the disciples who heard the Sermon of the Mount with their own ears, if they were susceptible to self-righteousness, then how much more susceptible are we? We're certainly no better than they were, right? Of course not. Of course we weren't. Of course we're not. (laughs) And that's kind of my point. And consider these very familiar words from Ephesians chapter 2, right? Paul writes and he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. For by works you have been saved through faith. Is that what it says? No. No, by what? For by grace 
you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that, why? So that no one can boast. If our own salvation is not of works, if our own salvation is not the result of works, then why on earth would we have any moral expectation of the lost who are still dead in their trespasses and sins? Listen, if you get nothing else out of this morning, walk away with this. We need to stop being shocked and disgusted with the sins of the lost. They're lost. Get over it. We need to stop being shocked and disgusted with the sins of the lost. And we need to start being shocked and disgusted by the sinful condition of our own hearts. Because those who have knowledge, as those who have knowledge, sometimes we're the most, we have the most sinful and wayward hearts. Sometimes we have the most hardened hearts. Remember who Jesus' audience was. Right? There were the tax collectors and the sinners, and there were the Pharisees and scribes. Tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees and scribes. Luke tells us in verse 2 that both the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble against Jesus, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. God forbid, right? Don't smoke, don't chew, don't hang out with girls who do. That was their mentality. You know, I think part of the role of the Pharisees in the Gospels, I think part of the reason they play such a predominant role in the Gospels is to reveal our own Pharisaical hearts. The Pharisees appear in Scripture like a mirror that when held up to our face will reveal our own deep-seated hypocrisy. And that is an awfully painful mirror to look in, especially nowadays. But you know, there's like that old adage that the barn needs painting, paint it. Sometimes we need to look in the mirror and see the things that we don't want to see. And we have to acknowledge him. We have to let Jesus do that work in our heart. Because the last thing we want to do is become a Pharisee. Philip Yancey says, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, that Christians get very angry towards others who sin differently than they do. <laughs> right? Is that you? Is that you? Are you angry towards others who sin differently than you? Are you disgusted by the whacked-out politician from the other party? Do you laugh and gloat as Ben Shapiro tears them crazy TikTokers to shreds on his show? Here's the thing. Facts might not care about those people's feelings, but Jesus does. Jesus does. Every one of them is a lost treasure just as you once were. The Apostle James draws an astonishing conclusion when he says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 
Now, the implication of the apostles' exhortation is of grave importance. When we set fire to the dignity of another human being, we are regarding the image of God with contempt. When we set fire to the dignity of another human being, I'm not saying that when we disagree with them, I'm not saying when we disagree with their sinful lifestyle, I'm saying when we berate them and ridicule them and run them down, we are setting fire to the dignity of another human being and we are holding the image of God that is embedded in that person with contempt. As C.S. Lewis famously wrote, there are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Such a notion should cultivate in us a sense of dreadful wonder. Because you see, as C.S. Lewis implied in the greater context of this quote, if the full human dignity of any one of these TikTokers was revealed, if they were revealed in all of their image-bearing glory, then we could very well be tempted to fall down and worship them. They are bearers of the image of God, and God values them. And what Jesus regards and esteems so highly, we cannot think of so poorly. I've been reading a uh, devotional by Ron Block. Some of you might be familiar with him and his work. He's uh, the lead guitarist for Allison Krauss in Union Station. He is a devoted follower of Jesus. And uh, he just released a new devotional. I'm working through that right now. It's excellent. And he makes a great observation about the Gospels and about how the Gospels open our eyes to help us to understand what we're talking about this morning. He writes and he says, the Gospels can help us put flesh and bone on Jesus, the disciples, and all the people interacting with them rather than seeing the Bible as a collection of doctrinal concepts. In the Gospels, we see Jesus associate with every level of society, rich and poor, religious leaders, thieves, prostitutes, fishermen, soldiers, and other races. He, he doesn't seem to recognize social divisions between people. He, he goes into the temple and into the synagogues. He attends parties, feasts, and weddings. He is branded as a glutton and a drunkard, walks willingly among lepers, blind beggars, loose women, and demon-possessed people. The Gospels help us put flesh and blood on all the characters of the Gospels. And they help us see them for who they are. Imperfect, but valued. Imperfect, but valued. And why are they valued? Why are they valued? They're valued because they bear the image of God. 
You see, there is no human being who has ever walked the face of this earth who has not borne the image of God. We were created in His image. And as image bearers, every one of us, every man, woman, and child belongs to the treasury of the king. And what happens, what happens when the, king treasure, when the king's treasure goes missing? He searches for it, right? He searches for it. Jesus searches for the lost. This coin, which had limited earthly value, was of infinite value to this woman. Likewise, you have infinite value to Jesus. Those still lost in their sins and transgressions have infinite value to Jesus. You have infinite value to Jesus. The still lost have infinite value to Jesus. And how do we know this? How do we know that we have infinite value, that the lost have infinite value to Jesus? Because infinity himself took on flesh and bone. He took on flesh and bone so he could suffer and die in the ultimate expression of love. It was Jesus himself who said in Luke 19 that he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And you know what? His mission didn't end once he found you. He came to seek and save the lost. And, and, and the Apostle Paul, he, he explained the full implications of Jesus' coming in Philippians chapter 2 when he wrote, Jesus, being in the form of God, emptied himself. How? By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he did what? He humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All the resources of heaven were mobilized to reach the loss. The, the pinnacle of the universe, the one whom through all things were made, he devoted himself to find you. You were the sheep that got out on the hill far away, off from the gates of gold, the old hymn goes. You were the coin hiding in the cushion of the couch. You were the son, the daughter, who fled from the presence of the Father. You were the lost coin, and he came looking for you. And he is still searching for the lost. He's still lurching, searching for the still lost coins. Why? because they matter to him every bit as much as we do. And what does the king do when he finds his treasure? Well, he rejoices. He celebrates. In verse 9, when she had found it, that is the coin, she calls together her, her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels. Joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There was a party in heaven on the day you were found. 
Interestingly enough, this party that we're talking about, I think think we're going to be shocked what it actually looks like when we get there. I think we're going to think it looks like some sort of eternal worship service. But, but here's the thing. Jesus, in the context, what is he doing with the sinners and tax collectors? He's eating with them. <laughs> He's partying with them. He is celebrating with them. So even the idea of heaven, the idea of heaven that Jesus is painting is one that is repulsive to the Pharisees. There was a party in heaven on the day you were found, a party just for you. Why? Because you were lost and you were found. Because you have great value to Jesus, you were restored to the treasury of the king. There was a party just for you, and now all of heaven is waiting in eager expectation for the next party. Why? Because a penny is a treasure. This is something I think we need to take really seriously. We are, I mean, even Dan Dorn and I talked after second or after first service rather, and I mean, we really are engaged in a culture war, aren't we? It's maddening. It's hard to watch the news. It's hard to listen to the radio. We are actively engaged in a culture war. But the weapons that God has given us is not a sharp tongue and a bitter spirit, but love, compassion, kindness, mercy, All the things that he showed us, all the things that he gave to us, we're to show to other people. We didn't earn earn Jesus' favor. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he loved us anyway, right? And we're able to love why? Class. Because he first loved us. Let's be the reason a lost sinner turns to Jesus, not the reason they walk away. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the mercy and the grace that you have poured out upon us. Lord, we were undeserving in our sin, but inherently, oh Lord, we have so much value in us as bearers in the image of God. And Lord, you went on a rescue mission to come and to seek and save the lost. And Lord, that mission, it will not be done the side of glory. Lord, give us the humility to engage, to, to receive <laughs> the grace and mercy that you have offered us. And the humility to live in the awareness of it towards the still lost coins that surround us in everyday life. In your name, amen.